HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yes, that's right. It's Monday. It's 12. In fact, it's 12.02. And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We had our big fall launch party last night. And for those of you who were unable to attend... You should be feeling pain right now because it was fantastic. We had it at the restaurant Lapicio on East First Street in Manhattan. The food was fantastic. The cocktails even better. I am now a total devotee of the sidecar. I'm embarrassed to say I had three of them, but only because they were so tasty. Um, and uh, fortunately, I had enough food to soak all that up. But uh, it was really a great party. And just because you weren't able to come to the launch doesn't mean you can't still show us some love. So if you go to our uh, webpage and you press on the donate button, or rather the pulsing heart in the upper right-hand corner, you too can show us the love that we so richly deserve. And with that said, I will move on to my favorite, uh, one of my favorite parts of this program, and that is the joys and sorrows section. Um, First, I want to make a correction, which was last week I misspoke somewhat about saying that the cow was out of the barn on those giant merger deals uh, with the Monsanto-Bayer deal being up front and center in my mind. They have been negotiated, it is true, but they are still being scrutinized by the Justice Department. And when I mentioned all of those uh, players who were involved in giving testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary, Committee uh, on Agricultural Affairs. That was the reason was to basically make their case for allowing those mergers to go through. So it isn't completely a done deal. But if I know my Congress, (laughs) I'm guessing it will be soon. Um, But uh, one joy is that the senator from Montana is urging uh, the Justice Department to say no to the Monsanto-Bayer deal. So at least some people in Congress are saying the right things. And in other merger and monopoly news, the feds have said no 
to the John Deere uh, Precision Planting, which is owned by Monsanto. Um, they were planning on, uh, John Deere was planning on acquiring Precision Planting, and the feds have now said no, citing a lack of competition and price fixing. Now, I find that really odd that they will say no to something like the John Deere merger with Precision Planting, but they don't immediately jump on the idea that, for instance, uh, Dow and DuPont maybe isn't the best idea in terms of price fixing or that Monsanto and Bayer should get into bed together. Again, a situation where price fixing, uh, lack of competition and so forth could have a really negative impact on American farmers. But we can only hope that they see the light in the next coming weeks. Um, In other news, the UN, this is also a joy, I mean, a kind of, shall we say, moderate joy, and that is that the UN has uh, finally addressed antimicrobial resistance and antibiotics in agriculture at their General Assembly on the 21st of September just passed. And in that um, meeting, it was demonstrated that the United Kingdom, that's England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, uh, the EU and North America are all taking it very seriously with new protocols uh, being developed at, all over the place in terms of how to dose animals, what to dose them with, and so forth. But the rest of the world is not so much. They had a very interesting table in which they, they showed North America, the EU, and I think it was just North America and EU because they were sort of lumping Britain in there despite Brexit. And and then they have the rest of the world, literally the rest of the world. So are veterinarians prescribing antibiotics instead of feed companies? Yes. Um, you know, all these other measures that have taken place over the last few years that are, are starting to have an impact on antibiotic-resistant microbes. And, and it's really all happening in the EU and the North American uh, community. And the rest of the world just really doesn't seem to be hearing the hearing the clarion call, although the Chinese are making a big difference um, in their own, uh, their own uh, uh, the way that they are prescribing antibiotics and the way they're using antibiotics, both in the agriculture sector and in their personal, in their human sector. Um, and then also at the same time, something called the One Health Summit uh, has brought 250 food and health leaders together in D.C. to discuss how to manage and monitor antibiotic usage in agriculture. And this is all basically, this is all very good stuff, people. This is like, you know, they're hearing it. They're hearing it. They're doing something. It takes a long time to move the boat, but they are doing it. And that is most encouraging for the future of the human race, quite frankly. That's how important this is. Just because it's not in the news cycle anymore doesn't mean that it's not important. This is like critical stuff that we all need to pay attention to. Um, And lastly, uh, oh, no, not lastly, but I I just wanted to, for one second, um, make a point about Donald Trump, who actually introduced a food policy, which was then quickly withdrawn last week. And that basically said that all regulations are bad and we should just let the food companies do whatever they want and um, forget about that food safety and inspection services. That's just a waste of time and money. And there's just too many regulations on all these people and it's not allowing free trade to go on and, and so forth. So we can only say thank you for withdrawing that absurd and ludicrous platform plank from the airwaves. And we can all just hope that... Um, well, we can all just hope that he doesn't get elected, please. I'm actually feeling kind of scared. And then lastly, one good thing, one really good piece of joyous news, and then we'll quickly jump to a commercial break, and then to our fabulous guest, uh, Marion Nessel, one of my very favorite interviews ever. Um, but organic food sales rose by 11% last year, which brings the total up to something like $39 billion worth of organic foods being sold in the United States. That's 
what voting with your dollars does. It's all making a big difference, and you should all be super proud of yourselves for driving that bus. So we'll take a short break. We'll be right back with Dr. Marion Nessel from New York University. We're going to talk about sugar and the shock to our system that was provided by the revelation of them buying off scientists. Oh, my God. Never heard of that before. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. And this is French Entrance by Teeth People. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to talk about sugar with one of my very favorite guests, Dr. Marion Nessel. She is the Paulette Godard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, a department she chaired from 1988 to 2003. She is also a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. Her books include The Seminar food politics, how the food industry influences nutrition and health, safe food, the politics of food safety, what to eat, why calories count, eat, drink, and vote, and last but certainly not least, soda politics, which came out last year, and you can listen to her interview with me from last September. Welcome back to the show, Marion. Glad to be here. It's really a pleasure. It's always so good to hear your voice. Now, first tell me, you were just on National Public Radio. Were you talking to Brian Lehrer? No, um, I'm not sure I know exactly who I was talking to, (laughs) but we were talking about sugar. What a coincidence. How how surprising. Well, I'm sure that they're not going to ask the pithy questions that I'm going to. So I feel certain that that the listeners who follow you will need to listen to this interview rather than the one you just had on NPR, because it isn't going to be any 40 minutes of digging into that subject, is it? Uh, certainly not. Certainly not. So first of all, let's have a recap of the revelations that were exposed uh, by the study that showed the historical documents regarding Harvard scientists being funded by the sugar industry, as if that were a big surprise. Was that, in your opinion, the first time that uh, scientists have been paid off to skew results? It's the first time I've ever seen any documentary evidence for it. Ah. Um, the, this was a study that took place in 1967, yeah. and the UCSF investigators had documents that demonstrated correspondence between the Sugar Research Foundation, which is the forerunner of today's Sugar Association, mm. and investigators at Harvard, no less. Mm. Um, and it, the, the documents make it very clear that the Sugar Association worked very closely with the Harvard investigators to frame the way the, the these literature reviews were done and the conclusions that they were coming to. Right. The Sugar Association sent papers to the Harvard investigators to review um, and asked them to be sure to review those very carefully because they were otherwise damning yeah. to the sugar industry. Um, and the whole thing just looked awful. 
awful. It's just awful. But I, on the other hand, it creates great headlines in my mind, such as like sugar throws fat under the bus. <laughs> you know, like, sugar points the finger. I mean, you know, you could have a lot of fun with that stuff. But um, so um, you and believe me, the press did. Yeah. Um, the investigators, the UCSF press office is keeping track. Yeah. And the last I saw was that there were 159 articles about it. Um, and it is the single most downloaded paper that the JAMA Internal Medicine has ever had. There were 400,000 downloads. Incredible. Marion, why do you think that this hit such a nerve? It's not like buying off studies is a new thing. Well, it's documentary evidence for something that everybody has suspected. And also because there's such a fight about sugar versus fat these days, which, by the way, I think is the wrong fight. But there's such a fight about it, and there are such loud voices on both sides, Um, people who think that fat, that sugar is poison. Uh, I mean, there's just so much discussion about that Mm. these days that the idea that people were duped into thinking that they should reduce their consumption of saturated fat, which, by the way, is still a good idea, Um, People feel duped, and they're outraged about it, and I can understand that totally. Yes, totally. Me too. So now you wrote an accompanying essay to this paper that was published by Kristen Kern, Stanton Gans, and Laura Schmidt, uh, the the JAMA paper that you referred to. What, What were some of the points that you made? Um, well, well I, there were a couple of points that I really wanted to make. Yeah. And one is that uh, industry funding of research invariably comes out, almost invariably comes out, with right. research results that favor what the sponsor paid for. That may be a coincidence, or there may be lots of other reasons for it, but that's how it comes out. Mm-hmm. So that was one point. The other point that I wanted to make was that the reviews that were written by the Harvard investigators had some very interesting material in it. And one was a graph that showed the epidemiology of sugar and saturated fat as risk factors for mortality in 1967. And the epidemiology was identical. You couldn't tell the difference in that graph between an effect of sugar and an effect of saturated fat. Now, of course, this is epidemiology, and that means it's association, not causation. But the fact that the associations were so strong for both should have given the Harvard investigators some pause and made them a little bit more cautious about dismissing sugars out of hand in the way that they did. Um, So, you know, this is a situation in which I think both are a problem. Both have calories. Um, Both are part of diets that aren't particularly healthy, either too much sweet stuff or too much meat, one Uh or the other. Everybody would be healthier eating less of both. And so I tried to put the findings in some kind of context without particularly singling out sugar as an enormous problem because I'm not of the opinion that sugar is poison. What can I say? I love sugar. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've seen you enjoy a cookie or two in your oh, lifetime. Or four. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, this is one of those everything in moderation situations. And the, um, the problem is that we're Americans and we don't do moderation. Right. Right, that um, is if, so true. You know, and if you don't do moderation and you're consuming lots and lots of sugar, which most people get most of from soft drinks, 
Yes. Um, I mean, the the two largest sources of sugar in American diets are soft drinks, although the soft drink industry and the sugar industry would say it's not sugar, it's high fructose corn syrup, um, which it is, but it's still sugar. And or sugars. Well, you have said just to, to back you up for a second. You have said in the past that sugar, that the that the molecular structure of sugar versus of sucrose versus fructose is basically identical. No, 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 no. Sucrose sorry. versus high fructose corn uh, sorry. syrup. Versus they high both sucrose. have fructose right. and glucose. Right. It's it's very hard for people who aren't trained in biochemistry to understand this, and it's really difficult to talk about. Um, but they're basically, from a physiological standpoint, they're basically the same. Mm-hmm. How we. Um, Process them is identical, essentially. And everybody would be healthier eating less of them, pretty much, Um, uh, either one. So let's just call it sugars, and that includes high fructose corn syrup. It includes agave. It includes um, naturally produced cane. And I'm saying that because I'm just back from Terra Madre in Slow Foods' big exposition. And I was on a panel on sugar in which there was an Ecuadorian maker of agave who um, said that her agave was low fructose and therefore the sugar was healthy. And there was a Peruvian producer of sugarcane who said that because his sugarcane was organic, it was the sugar was healthy. Um, <laughs> oh, and the, uh, it was a lot of fun. But they haven't done their microbiology studies, apparently. <laughs> I know, but there are, it's artisanal. What can I tell you? Yeah, I, it seems like you... you Paint it, paint it with that brush, and suddenly it becomes acceptable. You know, I, I wondered if you could help me and, um, by extension, my listeners, understand what the link is between sugar and coronary heart disease and hypertension. Is it weight gain, just weight gain, or is well, there something compli- more complex it's, it's happening? It's complicated, and anytime you hear the word complicated, it, mean, it means it's not understood very well. Um, certainly, sugar is a factor in rising rates of obesity yeah. or in, in obesity generally because sugar has Calories, like everything else, has calories. Mm-hmm. And we like sugary foods, so we tend to eat them in forms that are highly caloric. Right. Um, so that would be one way. Obesity is a clear risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Sure. Both are risk factors for heart disease. Um, but sh- eating a lot of sugar raises blood triglycerides. Mm-hmm. And for many, many years, there were debates about whether triglycerides were a risk factor for heart disease or not. Um, it, and it's hard to sort that out from everything else that everybody is eating. But I think there's generally it's generally accepted now that uh, triglycerides that your triglycerides having them high is not such a great idea and raises risk. But we're talking about risk here. We're not talking about certainty. Right. And so there's lots of uncertainties in all of this. This makes the science very difficult. Um, And my own feeling about this, as I tried to say in my editorial, was you need to look at the diet as a whole. You can't single out sugars. Most people don't eat sugar on its own. They eat the eat it in the unless they're chewing on sugar cubes all day long. Very bad for the teeth. They most people eat sugar in desserts or soft drinks, yeah. and saturated fat is never eaten alone. It's always accompanied by uh, unsaturated and polyunsaturated fat, and usually other nutrients as well. So it's very hard. The minute you start singling these things out, you're doing nutritionism, which is using single nutrients to stand for the diet as a whole. It just doesn't work. Right. Right. 
No, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know why. Well, anyway, we won't even discuss that because it's just a, it's a moot point. I mean, why people do tend to identify one particular thing and single it out as opposed oh. to looking at the diet as a whole seems to be a common problem. Well, because it's um, easier. Yeah. It's, it's easier to do the research and it's easier right. to make changes in your diet. I just won't eat sugar and I'll be healthy. Right, right. <laughs> Well, you'll be healthier. That's probably true, right? I don't know. It depends on how much you eat. I guess that's right. That's what makes nutrition so difficult. Yeah. Because there's a, there are quantitative aspects that are very, very important. If you're balancing calories and are physically active, the precise mix of carbohydrate, fat, and protein in your diet and where those, where those come from is not nearly as important as it is if you're overeating calories. That's right. That makes sense. Um, Marion, there was a quote that sort of confused me in the paper, uh, in Kristen uh, Kearns' paper. It says, it's, the quote is, our analysis suggests that research using sugar industry documents has the potential to inform the health community about how to counter this industry's tactics and strategies to control information on the adverse health effects of sucrose. So what she's saying is that by showing these documents, we can then kind of roll back people's misperceptions about sugar and therefore completely recalibrate the discussion about sugar and nutrition. Is that what she means? You have to remember that the UCSF group is part of the group that includes Robert Lustig, who's the sugar is poison proponent. Um, And they're very concerned. I mean, and they have sugar sense. They have a website that's devoted to trying to encourage people to consume less sugar. So they're very focused on sugar, um, which is fine. I I don't have any problem with that, uh, except once again, it's out of context. Mm And one of the things, you know, I see over and over again is that people don't eat these things on their own. They eat it in the context of the kinds of of a whole dietary pattern, almost impossible to study. Um, And so the science just isn't going to be there for it. But the message that I got out of this is that if you're looking at a study that's been funded by industry, you need to be particularly skeptical about it. Um, And there was one other thing about this this paper that I think really deserves emphasis, and that was the investigators didn't disclose that they were getting money from the Sugar Research Foundation. And that was interesting because the New England Journal of Medicine, where their reviews appeared, didn't require disclosure of funding until 1984. Wow. But it was absolutely common practice prior to 1984 to thank the funder of your study by by disclosing the funding and in fact these investigators disclosed several sources of funding they disclosed that they got money from the nutrition foundation and from the harvard fund for research um and also from the Dairy Council. But uh-huh. if, if you knew, if you were on the inside and you knew what the Nutrition Foundation and the Harvard Fund for Research were, you would know that this was a food industry-funded study because both were methods, for, both were organizations that laundered money from food companies and distributed it to researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you knew that these people were taking money from the food industry, but they didn't mention the Sugar Research Foundation. I guess they forgot. <laughs> I guess so. Um, you know, the thing about this 
Uh, the whole story, I think, and, and to go back to what you were saying earlier about sort of people feeling duped and the outrage, um, you know, this campaign was wildly successful at throwing fat under the bus, wasn't it? It actually it led to an entirely new group of foods, uh, you know, low calorie, low fat foods, the whole snack well phenomenon. Well, I think it's too strong to associate that. I mean, that's certainly what happened. But I think it's too strong to associate that to these particular reviews. There was a lot of research at the time uh-huh. that showed that fat was more important, that saturated fat was more important or risk factor than sugar. This wasn't the only one. And in fact, I was surprised. I was very curious to see whether these particular reviews had been the basis of a very large review that the FDA funded in 1985 on the relationship of sugar to health. And I looked through the references in it, and these particular reviews weren't even mentioned Mm. in it. And yet this review in 1985 came out with exactly the same conclusion mm-hmm. that sugars were not, a, were not related to coronary heart disease. I vaguely remember at the time that there was some concern that the person who was the head of that committee was on the take from the sugar industry, but I can't prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't find anything in a document that says so. Um, but I do have a copy of that report, and at the time it let completely off the hook. That one was really powerful. It was 1985, and it led to a very, very large comprehensive reports, one of which I edited in 1988 and 1989, um, that said that fat was the single most important dietary problem. And that's what led to the Snackwell's phenomenon. Right. But it also changed, like, the food pyramid and nutritional guidelines issued no, by the... No, sugar no? was in the pyramid from the beginning, and sugar was mm. in the guidelines from the beginning. Mm. It was always eat less sugar. These things are never as simple as you'd like to make them. <laughs> they just aren't. Yeah. Um, but the reason that sugar was there was because of tooth decay, which nobody argues about. Right. Well, hardly anybody argues about it. Um, and it didn't really say anything until about chronic disease until recently, but that's because um, of obesity. I mean, obesity really changed everything, and that started going up in the, seriously going up in the early 1980s. Yeah. Right. I just, I mean, I'm just trying to like trade, you know, trace back, you know, sort of the impact of this, of sort of sugar getting off the hook uh, and the current state of American public health. Well, I um, think it's difficult to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to attribute that to one set of papers. There was a lot of research at the time um, in the 1960s, 70s, and in fact, through the 1980s, arguing about whether triglycerides were a risk factor for coronary heart disease. A lot, if you eat a lot of sugar, triglycerides go up. Right. Um, but it was very, very difficult to get evidence, either epidemiological evidence or any other kind of evidence that showed that triglycerides were a risk factor for heart disease. It was very hard to do that, and it's really only recently that there's been a consensus forming around the issue of triglycerides. Um, so that took a long time. So I would say that these papers were part of... Um, a sort of uh, that's where the that's where the zeitgeist was at the time. Right, right. I do um, understand that. And, yeah. 
And yes, it was. It would have been helpful if they, if the investigators had been a little bit more honest about this, and it would have been helpful. I mean, one of the things that the UCSF investigators did that I think is absolutely extraordinary, and it's in the online tables that accompany their paper, mm-hmm. is kind of a line-by-line analysis or a study-by-study analysis of how the investigators spun the results. Mm-hmm. Anytime they saw results of a study that looked like sugar was a problem, they discounted it. And anytime they saw a study that looked like saturated fat was a problem, they accepted it. Yeah. Um, and so they applied different criteria to evaluation of the studies. Um, and you know, I think it's too simplistic to say that they were paid to do that because the at least one of the investigators was well known to be a... Um, I mean, he had a formula, and this is Mark Hegstead, who, by the way, was a hero of public health, and it was very disturbing to read this paper. Um, But uh, he was someone who had developed a formula that showed that if you consumed a certain amount of saturated fat and cholesterol in your diet, your blood was a predictive equation that would predict how much that would raise your blood cholesterol level, and that equation has held up very well over time. Uh Um, Ansel Keys had a similar equation. So a lot of what was done still holds up. Yeah. But I think you need to look at the diet as a whole. It's not, it's misleading to look at sugar or fat as if they were two different things. Two different things and in two different, uh, you know, I don't know, one being in the diet and one being some sort of separate but equal entity that has no... No, it's a question right? of whether you eat sugary foods or, or high-fat foods. Right. What about alcohol? What oh, about... yes. Well, that's another matter. Um, you know, that's <laughs> that's another what matter. matters to me. And, you know, alcohol has calories. And I would say that you have to put these things in their calorie context. Mm-hmm. If they're raising your calories above what you're generally putting out in physical activity, they're going to cause problems. Yeah. Yep, yep. Now, As does alcohol? Uh, yes, in, in in all sorts Alas. of ways. Yes, unfortunately, my favorite my favorite beverage. But you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but you know what interested me also about this is that is that this was um, I mean these this paper, but also the studies that came out in the sixty you know the, that it was based on the, the studies in in nineteen sixty seven. You know, the the rest of the world had access or was conducting this kind of research, presumably as well. And and I'm just curious that uh, other countries didn't come out with research that would have uh, perhaps supported your position that it's a whole diet uh, thing, as opposed to you know singling out one particular ingredient, or that there there is other research that supports the idea that sugar is equally implicated in, in uh, unfortunate uh, health outcomes. Why is it that nobody else was sounding the alarms? Or were, well, they were. Were we just? I mean, deaf there was a it? guy named John Yudkin, a, a physician in Great Britain, who had a book that came out around that time called Pure White and Deadly. Uh-huh. Um, he was a sugar's poison person. Um, but he um, tended to talk about it in a very alarmist way. And he was so alarmist and so extreme that his views were discounted. Mm. And and I remember, you know, I was just starting to teach nutrition at the time. Um, you know, in the early 70s, I was just beginning to start teaching this stuff. And he sounded so crazy that it was hard to take his work seriously. He wasn't publishing it in uh, 
prestigious academic journals. He was publishing these books with these crazy titles. Um, <laughs> and it was easy to discount what he was saying. Interesting. Um, and lots of people were doing research on this. Lots and lots of people were trying to sort this out. But I'll say again, anytime you look at one nutrient in the diet, and are not putting it in its context of calories and the total diet, you're going to come out with misleading results. Yeah. But it's too hard to study diets as a whole. It's not possible to do that. I mean, think for a minute of what you would have to do to find out whether sugar was a big problem. You would have to have a group of humans who would be willing to be locked up, because <laughs> if you didn't lock them up, you couldn't trust that they weren't cheating on their diet. Right. Um, so you would lock them up in a hospital metabolic ward with guards at the door um, and feed them different kinds of diets over a period of 20 years? Right. I don't think so. I don't think so, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. For one thing, it would be too expensive. For another, where would you get the people who would volunteer to do this? Now, they used to do this kind of research in prisons, but human subjects rules prevent that now. So you can't go into a prison and get your prisoners to agree to do this anymore. So this research is not possible to do. Wow. Um, and so if you want to... Um, do this kind of research. You ask people what they eat. You try to find people on low and high sugar diets. Um, this research is always going to have questions about it because it's not very well controlled. You don't know whether people are telling the truth. Everybody lies about them, their diets, or they don't remember. Yeah. I certainly don't remember. Yeah, no, same here. Um, and the, uh, I think it would be very hard to remember. And even when I've been forced to try to remember, I don't do it very well. The, um, and nobody else does either, I think, unless you're so terribly compulsive and write down everything you eat and drink and weigh it. Oh, and weigh it. Yeah. And weigh it. Well, yeah, because if you don't weigh it, you don't really know how big no it idea. is and you don't know how many calories it has. Right, right. Well, yeah, so it's impossible. This is impossible. Yeah. And it's to me, it's intellectually fascinating to try to figure out how you could do well-controlled nutrition research. I think it's really hard and very intellectually challenging. And most people underestimate the intellectual challenge that's involved and think if they just do this, this, or this, they're going to get an answer. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's, it's not that simple, as it's you said earlier in the simple. program. It's I just it not were. that I know, right? Um, I wanted to talk to you for a second um, before, because I, I do want to spend some time talking about the book you're working on, because I know that it relates to this. But, um, you know, this, the, the, the whole sort of revelation of Harvard scientists being paid by a certain lobby, this, I mean, yes, that was your first, uh, you know, absolute example with, with documentation that, that, uh, that confirms um, essentially bribery. But isn't this a ubiquitous problem in academic research right now? I mean, whether people want to admit it or not, but isn't it true that that whenever you have corporations funding academic studies on any subject, that you are going to find that those subjects will be, or that the results of whatever study it is are going to be skewed, as you said earlier, you know, stuff that's in favor of whatever, whoever is paying for it is published and the stuff that isn't is suppressed. And that's that's really across the board, it seems to me. How how can I mean, how can we raise awareness in the American public, for example, that this is what's happening and and also back that money out of academic research and put public funding in its place so that we don't have this kind of 
Well, you're asking several different questions. I know. Let me I am. handle them one at a time. Yes, one at a time, um, Marianne. Thank ob- you for breaking it down. The observation from the tobacco, chemical, and pharmaceutical drug industries, and I would say nutrition as well, is that if a corporation sponsors the research, the research is going to come out with a result that will either prove the, prove that the product works, prove that it's harmless, um, or have some other benefit for that corporation. And, you know, I did this very unscientific and unsystematic collection last yes. year from March 2015 to March 2016 when I got bored or I thought I'd made <laughs> (laughs) my point already. I collected industry-funded studies. Now, I have to say it's really easy to find industry-funded studies because all you have to do is look at the title. And if the title says that some particular food or nutrient has some amazing beneficial effect on health, um, you can guess that whoever makes that product paid for it. Because otherwise, why would anybody be doing that research? Sure. So um, I collected very unsystematically just anything that came across my desk, either because I ran across it in journals I usually read or because people sent them to me or because I read about them in the press. Um, and at the end of a year, I had 160, I had collected 168 industry-funded studies, and 156 of them came out with results that were favorable to the sponsor. Wow. And the other of the other twelve, they were kind of neutral, mm-hmm. um, so I didn't count them as favorable. Um, and in, in I think in one or two cases, there were results that must have disappointed the sponsors a great deal. But that was it. Mm-hmm. Now people would argue, well, results the negative results don't get published. This is true. Um, and in fact, I just saw a study today on um, oh, the industry had done studies on the the pesticides that kill bees mm-hmm. and had suppressed that those studies. And, oh yes, I saw that. Yeah, and Greenpeace. Um, got Freedom of Information Act materials that showed that they had this research, but they hadn't published it. So this is an example with it where industry doesn't publish research that's unfavorable mm-hmm. to, its, um, to its particular economic interests. There's not the, the argument that there's not a lot of federal funding for nutrition research is um, true to some extent. There's not a lot of funding for the kind of research that companies want in order to be able to make health claims on their products. Uh, the government agencies are not interested in funding marketing research, except for the Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. which sponsors a lot of um, co-funded studies with various kinds of commodity groups to prove that those commodities have some kind of health benefit. But in general, NIH and the other funding agencies don't fund that kind of research. They're interested in basic research. This is not basic research. This is marketing. This is marketing research. So if you're an investigator and you're working in a university these days, you're basically expected um, if you, depending on what kind of a university you're at, you're expected to bring in your own salary through grant, through overhead on grant money, uh-huh. or you're expected to bring in overhead on grant money um, to help pay for your university. I mean, I was in a 
remarkably privileged position in having a full salary from NYU and not having to get grant money. Mm-hmm. But I started before this was such an issue and have been continued. But for investigators starting out now, it's not enough to produce research. They have to produce funded research. Wow. Because with grants comes a 30% or whatever it is these days, overhead that the university then gets or the department gets. Mm -hmm. So that makes it very difficult for researchers. Yeah. And then researchers need results. They can't do studies that go on and on and on for years and don't produce results that um, can be published on an ongoing basis because if you're a university researcher, you have to be productive, and that means publish. Yeah. So they can't do studies that are hard to do. They have to do easy studies that get results right away. So the entire system is set up for not being able to engage with the kinds of questions that consumers would like to know. And and I saw this most specifically with pet food. Uh-huh. Um, you know, in my pet food book, um, I was really interested when I was writing What Pets Eat, which was actually an analysis of the pet food industry, um, oh, my co-author and I couldn't find research to answer the kinds of questions that we were interested in mm-hmm. from a consumer's point of view, which was, is an expensive pet food made with natural ingredients better for pets' health than a crappy uh, pet food that's really cheap and made with... Made with byproducts. Made with disgusting byproducts. <laughs> um, and our suspicion was that you wouldn't be able to show a difference. Mm. But nobody would want to do that research. Yeah. Who would want to do that research? And who would pay for it? No pet food company is going to pay for research that runs the risk of showing that its expensive organic pet food products are no different than cheap Walmart's products um, because nutritionally they're roughly identical because all pet foods that are complete and balanced have to have the same nutritional value. Right, right. I mean, there's standards for that. Um, So I would have liked to see whether premium products were really healthier for pets, whether you could could show that. But nobody's going to do that research. So similar things happen in human research, Uh human nutrition research. You've got to find somebody who thinks it's an interesting enough question to, to pay for it and Uh, certainly no food company is going to pay for research that might turn out to be harmful to their cause. Right, right. Yeah, so for example, the organic food industry is not going to pay for research that shows that organic food is roughly comparable to industrially produced food. From a nutritional nutritional standpoint. Yeah, Yeah. and that's an interesting example because when I see a study, uh, this is a title situation, when I see a study that comes out that says um, organic foods are better for you than uh, conventionally grown foods or that GMOs are better for you than um, anything else, I know who paid for it. (laughs) Yeah, yep. Um, do, right and, away. That's, yeah. and that's unfortunate. And what you hope in that situation is that eventually enough research will come out that you'll be able to make these kinds of distinctions. I can't think of any reason why organic food would be less nutritious, mm-hmm. but I don't think nutrition is the issue with organic food. Production values are the are the issue. 
Yes. They have less pesticides. That's right, right. good enough for me. The externalities, but yeah. But it doesn't sell organic foods as well as nutrition does. No, that's absolutely true. Um, while we have just a few minutes left, I want to talk about the book you're working on. Tell us about it. And oh, I've it just out? started. I've just, just started. started. But it's a sugar book, right? It doesn't have a publisher yet. Oh, it um, No, I'm writing a book about food industry funding of nutrition research and practice, uh-huh. um, tentatively titled Buying Nutrition Research, although that may not stick. Um, and it's out to publishers now. At this, even as at we this speak, very moment, wow! At this very moment, waiting for a publisher. It's had one offer, so I know it's going to have a publisher. Um, <laughs> That's great. And, um, and it's, uh, and I'm going to be looking at exactly the kinds of questions that we've been talking about yeah. in what I hope will be a very systematic and understated way. Um, and then we'll come out with recommendations about what needs to be done. The best uh, idea that I've heard so far. Tell me. Um, what is to, for the government to require food companies to contribute money to a common fund mm-hmm. that would then be distributed uh, to researchers. And I like that idea because if food companies voluntarily contribute to a fund and fund, and there are many, many examples of this. And I, and I should say that food industry funding of nutrition research started right from the beginning in the 1920s. Oh, really? Yeah, there were food companies that were, because remember, researchers wanted to thank their funders, so they were disclosing funding in papers right. that were in the first journals, or the first um, issues of nutrition journals in the United States. There's a long history of disclosure. Whether it's complete disclosure or honest disclosure is another matter, <laughs> but it didn't really become a problem until quite recently. But um, nutrition journals from the 1920s showed that drug and um, and food corporations were funding nutrition research. They were really interested in vitamins. Uh-huh. Vitamins had just been discovered. They were really exciting. Everybody wanted to get in on it. Food manufacturers wanted to know whether their products had vitamins, whether they should be adding vitamins. Supplement makers were really excited about the whole idea. Yeah. Um, and food companies were interested. So right from the beginning, there was a partnership between food companies and the nutrition research community and that partnership grew over time, and in 1940, the Nutrition Foundation um, began to set up this laundry, this laundering fund for food industry money, and it collected lots and lots of money from food companies. But because it was voluntary, over time, the Nutrition Foundation started pandering to food companies because they wanted the money to continue. Mm-hmm. And they probably I mean, this wanted is human. More. This is natural human behavior. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of human behavior that's involved in all of this that's normal and natural and understandable. Um, and I'm going to be writing about all that. Yeah, because I don't think any of us, well, I hope that people don't think that food companies or sugar companies or any of these companies sit around thinking up ways to poison the consumer, right? Yeah, I mean, or even to bribe <laughs> investigators. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's not their motivation, is no. to bribe investigators. And investigators, by the way, don't feel bribed. They wouldn't. They have ethics about bribery. They don't think that food industry money influences 
um, what they do and are, in fact, outraged at the suggestion. And that also is, uh, there's a lot of human behavioral studies that bear on that. Well, we're, we're going to have to leave it at that, but um, that's, that's a great starting point for our next conversation, Marion. <laughs> how does, how, how basic human behavior influences uh, research and development? I mean... There's a lot to unpack there. Anyway, I want to thank you, Marian Nessel, so much for joining me today to talk about this Sugar Report. Um, sugar Report is what we used to call love letters, by the way, when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here as always. Thank you so much, my dear. And thank you to my sponsor, Kane Winery. You've been with us from the beginning. We can't appreciate, can't tell you how much we appreciate that so- support. And uh, remember, folks, we're in our fall fun drive. Please hit the button, uh, pay the money, and um, do the right thing. Support this radio station. We're like no other. Until next week then folks thanks for listening and we'll see you then have a good one thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 